This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast, where we're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. I'm Chris Sims. I'm the newly minted Alberta director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Still <laughs> wearing my BC hat, a little crooked, and I'm here with Franco Terrazano, my friend and colleague. He's holding down the fort for us in Ottawa. He's the federal director. So, Franco, we had some fun last week. Uh, most of us across Canada had press conferences highlighting the true cost of the carbon tax just in time for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's rebate. So what gives? Uh, why were we the party poopers here? Why is it actually costing us more than we're getting back in rebates? Well, it turns out that the Trudeau government isn't exactly being honest with us Canadians. I know you're surprised. Shocker. Uh, and that's because the Trudeau government is claiming that families are going to be better off with its carbon tax and rebates. It's claiming that after the rebates, families will be made better off. But of course, the parliamentary budget officer, which is the government's own independent watchdog, is saying that the Trudeau government is using magic math. So this year, the average household in one of the provinces uh, that are paying the Trudeau carbon tax, it'll cost them hundreds of dollars even with the rebate. So let me just kind of break it down by province here. So the average family in Ontario, you're going to pay an extra $360 this year because of the carbon tax, even after the rebates. If you're in Manitoba, the average family, the carbon tax is going to cost you $299. Saskatchewan, that's $390. And in your neck of the woods, Chris, in Alberta, uh, the carbon tax is going to cost that average household $671 this year, even after those rebates. That is a massive amount of money, uh, even with inflation, if you're doing the math, that is two massive truckloads of groceries for a family of four here in Alberta, uh, but unfortunately seems to go along with the theme of Albertans getting kicked harder. Now, we hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I was looking further at that report and it ain't going to get better. It's going to get nah. worse. Uh, how did he figure that out and how much worse is it going to get? Well, that's putting it mildly. And it's going to get worse because Trudeau is going to keep cranking up his carbon tax uh, all the way to nearly 40 cents per liter of gas by 2030. Okay, so here's what that means to you in the grand scheme of things. It means that from now all the way through 2030, the carbon tax is going to cost your average household anywhere from $6,400 all the way up to $13,000 even after accounting for the rebates, uh, depending on what province you live in. And look, here's the message that we've been delivering. We delivered it during our press conferences. Here's the key message. It is so tone deaf for Trudeau to keep raising the carbon tax when Canadians are already struggling to afford the price of fuel right now. Yeah, it really is. Um, I've been observing politics my entire life. I actually can't remember the last time I've seen politicians, uh, particularly those in power in Ottawa, this out of touch. The mm. attitude that they give back is basically, well, let them just drive Teslas. It's unbelievable. Uh, average people cannot afford $2 a liter gasoline at the best of times. The idea that they're just going to crank those thumb screws in tighter now and not give a darn about what voters think is crazy. It gets even crazier though, uh, because my old job back at BC, we've been paying the second carbon tax now for years, and it just makes life unaffordable when it comes to prices of the pumps. And now it turns out this calculation from the PBO isn't even including the second carbon tax that's going to come in federally soon. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, the PBO's numbers don't include the second carbon tax. And, you know, the government just re released its updated impact assessment of the second carbon tax. So let me break those numbers down for you. So here's what the second carbon tax is. It's buried within fuel regulations, and they're going to require producers to reduce the carbon content of their fuels. And if companies can't meet the Trudeau government's requirements, then those companies are going to have to pay the Trudeau government's second carbon tax. But here's the thing. The government's own analysis shows that those costs are going to be passed on to the consumer. The government's own numbers show that the second carbon tax could increase the price of gasoline by up to 13 cents per liter by 2030. But Chris, as you know, that's likely a low ball estimate because the second carbon tax in British Columbia consistently costs more than 15 cents per liter of gas. And here's the thing. There are no rebates with the second carbon tax. So at least with the first carbon tax, you might get some of your money back. Obviously, not all of it, but you might get some. Uh -uh, no rebates with the second carbon tax. And one more thing that I want to add. We have to stop pretending that these high gas prices are just an accident. They're not. They're precisely what the Trudeau liberals want. So if you look at the government's own analysis of the second carbon tax, it makes it very clear who these high gas prices are going to hurt the most. They're going to hurt low and middle income Canadians. They're going to hurt the Canadians who are already struggling with energy poverty, the single mothers, the, the, the seniors who are living on fixed income. So Chris, it's so mind-boggling to say this, but by 2030, we could be paying more than 50 cents per liter just in carbon taxes. It's a huge disconnect to, um, they seem to have this cavalier attitude that you can just opt out of, you know, well, even I was so surprised to hear the outgoing now Premier of British Columbia, John Horgan, who has worked for a living before. That guy used to wait tables at the keg. He was raised by a single mom. He was not born into a big old inheritance. Uh, and his attitude was, well, take the bus. That is shocking coming from a guy who was largely elected within his party uh, from blue collar voters within the NDP. You know, the pipe fitters and the steel workers, folks like that. Uh, there is a growing disconnect here. But when it comes to environmentalism, what about the argument that, yeah, well, uh, nobody can afford uh, to drive to work or to head to the grocery store anymore, much less a family car trip this summer. But what about the environment? How do we save the planet if we're not paying through the nose of carbon taxes? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because we hear that all the time. And yeah. here's the message that we say. Well, look, the carbon tax is not a low cost environmental plan. The carbon tax is a high cost tax plan. I mean, you know this better than anyone else, Chris, but British Columbia has high, the highest carbon tax, I should say the highest carbon tax is for years now, and emissions continue to go up. Uh, if you look at the data from the Trudeau government, from the first year of the Trudeau government's national carbon tax, surprise, surprise, emissions went up. So you've got emissions continuing to go up and you still have the carbon tax costing family hundreds of dollars every year, even with the rebates. So again, here's what we are always saying. I mean, the carbon tax is all economic pain without the environmental gain. You're right. And there's a million other things that folks could be doing. Uh, a tax is not the solution to this. A tax is not the solution to emissions. Uh, there are smart people on the big end of the arithmetic problem there that figure out a way uh, to reduce our emissions without taxing people to death. Now, going forward, um, 
if we could wave a wand and somehow make the prime minister listen and actually hear us and enact what we want him to when it comes to carbon taxes, what would we say to him? What do we want Trudeau to do in this case? <laughs> well, hey, look out the window, right? When you're when you're flying all over the world, see what the other countries are doing. Because the other countries, there's many of them out there, they're doing the right thing. They're stepping up to the plate and they're providing their citizens uh, with actual tax relief to ease the ease the pain of inflation. I mean, the United Kingdom announced billions of dollars of tax relief. South Korea cut its gas taxes by 30%. You've got Germany cutting fuel taxes. The Netherlands cut fuel taxes. You have Italy, Ireland, India. You've got Peru. You've got Poland. They're cutting fuel taxes. Uh, we've seen the Alberta government cut fuel taxes. Newfoundland and Labrador, the government of Ontario. Uh, you even have state governments. You've got New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Florida. They've all announced gas tax relief. Uh, Chris, President Joe Biden <laughs> is pushing for gas tax relief, even pushing the state governments to push uh, push for gas tax relief. And then, of course, you have the largest party within the European Parliament that's also pushing for gas tax relief. So what do we want Trudeau to do? We want him to follow the lead of what other world leaders are doing and provide Canadians with some much uh, needed tax relief. And now just one more thing. I know we've been throwing a lot of numbers out there, but today Trudeau could immediately provide relief at the pumps by up to 30 cents per liter by scrapping the carbon tax and by cutting the GST and fuel taxes at the pump. And that would save a family uh, more than $20 every time they fuel up their minivan. That is a lot of money. Uh, Franco, excellent points on this. And folks, if anybody wants to look at the actual data here, I happen to know <laughs> that when Franco wrote up many of these uh, articles and pieces on this, he has hyperlinks on every single one of these countries and states and regions showing how they reduce their gas prices. Franco, uh, earlier this morning, you and I were talking on the phone about pay raises uh, when it comes to the government. And when we were talking about the tale of two pandemics, right, there's the so-called government sector uh, employees and there's the rest of us, uh, the working steps in the private sector. Uh, paint a picture for us. How different was the pandemic when it comes to pay hikes, bonuses, all that jazz? Oh, I mean, well, look, private sector, uh, so many people took pay cuts. So many people lost their jobs. So many people even uh, may have lost their business for good. And, and of course, government was protected behind those golden gates. Um, but let me really illustrate the point with a crazy story that we dug up. Uh, it turns out the government spent $1.6 billion on overtime between 2019 and 2021, uh, which is already a crazy huge amount. But when we dug into what the departments were spending, check out some of these notable OT expenditures from some of the departments. Elections Canada spent $1.4 million on overtime in 2020. Uh, 2020, there was no election. Why was Elections Canada spending that much time, that much money on overtime? Here's another one. The House of Commons and the Senate spent $13 million on overtime during the pandemic, despite Parliament sitting in a virtual hybrid format. Okay. Uh, how is that even possible? Exactly. The Governor General's office spent $1.2 million on overtime since 2019. <laughs> okay, here's a yeah, what are they doing over there? Probably finding new ways to waste our money. Um, yeah. Health Health Canada and the public health agency spent $76.4 million in overtime during the pandemic. Now, you know, they were probably busy, right? But here's yeah. the thing 
that only accounted for 7% of overtime pay during the pandemic. And now here's, here's really where you got to put that hot coffee down. Fisheries and Oceans spent $98 million on overtime during the pandemic, which is more than $20 million more than what the two health departments combined spent on overtime during the pandemic. Sorry, what? Like $98 million at fish? Fish spent $98 million, that department. (laughs) Fisheries and Oceans spent $98 million on overtime during the pandemic. Did we save a pot of killer whales and nobody bloody noticed? No, that's crazy. How, okay. This is going to get worse before it gets better, man. Why, how and why did they spend that amount of money? And how do they decide where to allocate that overtime? How does this make yeah, sense? That is, that, is, that is such a great question there. I mean, the question that I was, the question that I immediately thought too, I mean, obviously after the $1.6 billion, just a huge amount, obviously like the crazy departments, like why are they spending that? money like some of those like the governor general's office what are they doing um but here's the other question that i immediately had is what are we getting for all of that money okay and and apparently not much we kept digging so remember 1.6 billion dollars on overtime since 2019 well it turns out that the government was also hiring 15,000 new employees every single year during that time period okay so 1.6 billion on overtime plus 15,000 new employees each year. But get this, federal bureaucrats only hit 49% of their performance targets in in 2019. They only hit 46% of their performance targets in 2020. So you have the federal government spending buckets of cash on overtime pay, spending buckets of cash, hiring new employees, and these federal departments can't even hit half of their performance targets. Those are failing grades. Those are failing grades. If you had those grades in school or university, you would not advance. That's crazy. Now, when you dig into performance, uh, what I was surprised by looking at your notes there is that there are departments where people on the real side of the fence, so for example, being able to afford groceries, being able to afford a house, uh, being able to afford the rate of inflation right now, Hmm. there are people on this side of the fence that can barely afford those day-to-day things. And yet, when you look at the departments responsible for those areas, they're getting bonus pay too. Can you break some of that down? Well, yeah. I mean, we also saw more than $100 million in bonuses uh, that were handed out during this time. Um, again, at a time when half of the performance objectives were met. Okay. So like in the private sector, if you don't meet half of your performance objectives, you get shown the door. Yeah. <laughs> that door right behind me is what yeah. our bosses would be showing me. Uh, they wouldn't be showing me a big fat bonus check. But here, let's just shift gears really quick because I have an example that I think really highlights yep. the craziness that is going on in Ottawa. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Now, I know our listeners have heard a thing or two about the CMHC. Okay, so the CMHC is a federal crown corporation And it gave its employees nearly $60 million in bonuses and pay raises in 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic and while Canadians can afford to move into a new home. And I I don't mean to embellish here. Home prices increased by about 13% in 2020, and then they increased by another 21% in 2021. Now, remember, this is a federal crown corporation whose number one objective is housing affordability. So then why is the CMHC patting itself on the back 
handing out millions of dollars in bonuses and pay raises while taxpayers struggle through a pandemic and when Canadians can't afford to buy a home. And Chris, oh yeah, the reason that our listeners know about the CMHC is because this is the same organization that took our tax dollars, $250,000 to fund a report that recommends a brand new home tax and then spent another $200,000 trying to understand the relevance of the report. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And we're seeing similar stuff, too, uh, through all that work you guys are doing there at the Ottawa office on things like dairy, right? The dairy executives handing themselves pay raises and Bank of Canada, it sounds like now, too. Can you get into that? Man, this is uh, this is these are two crazy stories. So the Dairy Commission gave themselves pay raises and bonuses in 2020 and 2021. Now, here's why that's so tone deaf. I mean, even just leaving a, a, setting aside the fact that this all happened during a pandemic when so many in the private sector struggled through very difficult government restrictions. But here's what else the Dairy Commission was doing while it was giving itself bonuses and pay raises. It hiked the price of milk in 2020, then again in 2021. Then it hiked the price of milk by an all-time high of 8.4% earlier this year. And it just announced another milk hike happening again, about two and a half percent come this September. Okay, so they also received more money from taxpayers. And according to their last annual report, they received more money for taxpayers to fund the bigger salary costs. Okay, so you have these bureaucrats at the Dairy Commission that are padding their pockets with more tax dollars while they're increasing the price that taxpayers are paying for milk at the till. It's extremely tone deaf. And it's almost the exact same story going on with the Bank of Canada. Okay. Turns out the Bank of Canada, again, these are documents that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has been digging up, but it turns out the Bank of Canada, our central bankers have been busy, not fighting inflation, or at least doing the good job there. They've been busy handing out 45 million smackers on bonuses and pay raises over the last two years. Now, Chris, the central bank's entire purpose essentially is to keep inflation low around 2%. <laughs> now, if you've gone, <laughs> can't sorry, say with a straight man. face. It's just so well, bad. Because, because if you've gone, if you've happened to stumble into a gas station or a grocery store in the last year, you know that they've essentially failed miserably to yep. keep inflation to 2%. So then why are they handing out bonuses and pay raises? Just disgusting. Uh, Folks, you really need to dig into that. Uh, Go to our website. You can find all sorts of Franco's research and work there. And again, their key mandate is to keep an eye on inflation and to keep it manageable and low. I don't know about you folks, uh, but I sure as heck am noticing inflation. Just give you an example, okay? Um, I eat mostly meat. I try to keep carbs down because, you know, I'm over 40 and they're deaf. So, I eat like this salami, which was really affordable for years. It was at Walmart for eight bucks. It had the big sticker on it. That thing is $11.99 now. That's in two years, it's gone up that amount. And now you extrapolate, do the math, figure if you've got like four kids, think if you've got like a higher grocery bill, think if you have a lower income, that is just crunching into people's budgets right now. I used to get a call about once every three weeks on, hey, I can barely afford basics or I'm upset about this and that. It's every week now. It's every week. And they're from folks who have just discovered us as a group. And I know politicians are hearing the same thing. Um, Franco, you and I talk about accountability a lot. 
And I think I'm hearing a lot more desperation from people that feel powerless. They feel like they're not in control of their lives, to borrow a phrase. Um, how do we fight this? How do folks actually push back on this when they see pay raises and bonuses being handed out to unelected bureaucrats who aren't making their lives more affordable and easier? How do we fight back? Well, step number one is you politicians need to do their jobs. Yeah. They're getting paid a nice six-figure taxpayer-funded salary to keep an eye on all this, right? It should be the bureaucrats running the show. We need our politicians to keep an eye on all this, but they're not doing their job. And let me give you a good example. So at the height of the pandemic, and as the debt was surging through the $1 trillion ceiling, Ottawa agreed to new contracts for thousands of its employees for pay raises. And I don't know about you, we're both keeping a pretty close eye on Ottawa. I don't remember a single member of parliament making a stink about the pay raises that were being negotiated while their neighbors who are paying their bills were sent to the ranks of the unemployed. Okay, so in total, more than 300,000 federal employees received at least one pay raise during the pandemic and lockdowns. Not a single government employee federally took a pay cut during the pandemic. Uh, in fact, the federal government has no records of its employees ever receiving a pay cut. Ever. Ever. But hold on a second here. It'd be pretty tough for members of parliament to crack down on the bureaucracy when they've been busy taking three pay raises during the pandemic. So while you and yours have been struggling through COVID-19, through lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera, your member of parliament has been busy giving themselves three pay raises during COVID, ranging from an extra $10,600 for your backbench member of parliament, all the way up to an extra $21,200 for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So Chris, you started with this sentiment, but yeah, I think it's pretty clear that we've seen a tale of two pandemics here. We really have. And folks, uh, the CTF has been around now for goodness, uh, 1990. We were, we've been around since before the internet. So we were doing letter writing campaigns and phone call campaigns before email was a thing. And so, yes, I'm going to encourage everybody listening right now who has had it, like you've had it, you're done. Good. Join us, go to our website, taxpayer.com, sign all of our petitions. That's how you get on our standing army list of emails. So yeah, do the, do the usual, write your member of parliament, write your provincial legislature, whoever that is, an MLA or an MPP, tell them that you won't stand for this anymore. Tell them that not only will you not vote for them next time around, but that you and your friends will do a door knocking campaign against them in their riding. They'll listen real quick. Because if a politician is worried that he or she is going to lose their job next time, it suddenly digs the wax out of their ears. But Franco, I think we need to go a step further. Uh, we have that ability now. It's in formation here in Alberta. I come from BC where we have provincial recall legislation. It's well past time that we have federal recall legislation. And now is the time to strike. Strike where the iron is hot. There is a current leadership debate happening within the opposition party right now. So you get those folks to commit to opening it up to federal recall legislation. And I think more politicians will be more responsive. Um, for folks who don't know, uh, Franco, you can explain this better than I can by having a certain percentage of people within a riding sign a petition uh, to hold a by-election, you at least have the chance of firing your MP. Do I generally have that right? Yeah, no, you've, you've got it right. And here's the thing, right? Uh, if voters are the boss, if the people are the boss, then we should be able to hold our uh, politicians accountable every single year 
not just during election year. So Chris, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the tools in the toolbox that we need to push for is recall legislation at the federal level. For real. That's how we fight for taxpayers. And James Wood, he is our investigative journalist. Yes, we have one. He's like our secret weapon. Who's not so secret because I can see your face. So James, um, you've been taking a nice long look at our ministers and our politicians and bureaucrats who like to fly around the world on our dime to climate conferences. The latest one uh, was in Scotland. Uh, Tell us about the spending and accommodation habits of Minister Freeland. Yeah, so uh, we've been doing lots of tracking of the way the minister is spending money going to these conferences. Uh, Christian Freeland, she really stood out from the crowd at Glasgow because she didn't actually stay in Glasgow. She stayed in essentially the wrong city, uh, nearly 100 kilometers away. Um, so this conference was in Glasgow, but for some reason, she and three of her staff stayed in Edinburgh. Uh, which kind of a weird one there. You think that her staff can maybe take a look at, you know, Google Maps and be like, okay, this event's in Glasgow. We should stay in Glasgow. No, 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 no. Okay, let's let's stay in Edinburgh. That's nice and close. No, it's not. No, it's not. So evidently they couldn't figure out Google Maps and they ended up staying in Gla- ended up staying in Edinburgh and having to go back and forth a bunch of times over. Okay, I don't even know how that happens. Like, did Freeland forget to download Google Maps on her phone before booking this trip? I mean, hold on a second. Like, like everyone knows that I'm not the most punctual person in the world. Like, I've been lost a few times. But, like, when I get lost, I go a couple blocks in the wrong direction. Not 80, 86 kilometers uh, to another city. Now, uh, my my taxpayer spidey senses are tingling. You, you said she stayed in, in the wrong city. So, I'm guessing there was quite the taxpayer tab that they racked up on our expenses. So James, how much did that cost us? It was, it was a pile of money, but uh, it was around 43,000 for the whole, for the whole shebang. Um, But the thing that really stood out to me was because they were in the wrong city, they had to go back and forth over the two days that they were there. And instead of, you know, taking a, a cheap option, like the train that goes a bunch of times, they decided to opt for a luxury uh, car service. And it's, it's literally, it's like a luxury car service. They hired the service that specializes when you go to the website in uh, <laughs> luxury golf transport. That's their, that's their main thing. So they spent around three grand to do this. Um, they are going back and forth over those two days. And the thing is, is that Canadians didn't have to, to pay that money. That wasn't that like the option that they should have taken that they didn't even take in the first place because around 121 trains go between Glasgow and Edinburgh each day. And they cost a heck of a lot less than uh, Freeland's luxury chauffeur. Like she could have gotten to the conference quicker and for less money by taking a first class tickets on those trains back and forth direct each day. So and let I- me jump in. Let me jump yeah. in on this, Simmer. Yeah, Sorry, right. I have to, because <laughs> well, this is, this is, $3,000 on a luxury chauffeur service must be nice uh, to, because the finance minister stayed in the wrong city. And, and yes, I know what you're thinking. This is the same finance minister that recently gave a speech about the government's fiscal restraint. <laughs> well, I think this perfectly paints the picture of the Trudeau government's fiscal restraint. Um, James, I got another follow-up question. I'm just going to jump right in there. Um, you know, when we originally put out this story, we heard some chattering. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe Freeland couldn't get a place in Glasgow because maybe the rooms were filled. Uh, so that immediately makes me wonder, well, how many bureaucrats did we send to this climate conference in the first place? 
Oh, we sent a pile of people. We sent, like, we sent the largest delegation out of the G7. We sent more people. We sent, okay, we sent 276 delegates. That was bigger than the host delegation of the United Kingdom, the folks that actually put the event on in the first place. Like, it's crazy how many people we sent. Now, you look at the Americans. The Americans sent 133 people. The efficient Germans, they sent... 120. Like, I don't understand. It's hard to imagine why it takes more than two Canadian delegates to do to, to uh, do the work of one American or German delegate. And the, the price tag for the entire thing is insane. Like the trip costs more than a million dollars. And that total bill is still being tallied up. It's a million and counting. So it's crazy. We send piles of people to these things that we really do not have to do. And uh, why do I have a sneaking suspicion that this isn't the first time we wasted a bunch of money on one of these conferences. Why, why, why do I just feel like that's the case? Oh, because, because you're right. Like we, this is a recurring thing. Like we, Canada as a whole usually sends piles of people more than other delegations from the G7. Like, and actually back in 2019, there was the uh, previous conference, uh, COP25 in Madrid. We sent uh, the second largest delegation, G20 country. That was 107, um, sorry, 157 people. And that cost taxpayers at least $680,000 and counting again because the bills still haven't been counted up from that one. So it was just, it just keeps happening and happening for no apparent reason. You know, I don't understand. This gets back to just the culture of entitlement that happens in Ottawa if people aren't held to account. Um, I lived in Ottawa for 15 years, worked on the Hill. This is not new. This is not their first rodeo. Everybody bloody well knows how to save money and to not do this. So, so much so that when staffers are making up and looking at their minister's expenses, they should be being super careful. Like, did you need to charge a per diem today, sir? Um, we're not staying in a hotel that has Prince or Royal in the, in the title of it because we're going to get nuked, even if it's a cheaper hotel. Like, they're usually very, they're supposed to be able to be cost conscious because we live in a democracy. We all pay the bills. They know this. They know this, but unfortunately, if it's a repeated pattern of behavior, it doesn't seem like they care and they think they can just get away with it. So on that note, like you've been taking a look at all this research and all this data, where do you see the solution here? How do we clean this up and make sure this doesn't happen at the next big old fancy climate conference? Okay, so, so num number one, uh, the finance minister or her staff can check Google Maps before sure. booking their <laughs> next <laughs> getaway or the next transport option. And at least that way, we won't, won't be on the hook for thousands of dollars for a luxury chauffeur van going back and forth from the hotel to the conference, hopefully. But the biggest thing is that we could just, you know, take a serious look at how many people we're sending to these things and whether or not they're actually all needed. Like the government just spent uh, two years telling Canadians to avoid un unnecessary travel. We'd probably save a ton of money if they follow their own example and uh, zoom into these things more. And also, you know, save on emissions from what they're trying to do with these conferences. Oh, right, because it was a climate conference, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> all right, folks, that's all for this week. Uh, if you really like this stuff and you wanna hear more about crazy waste stories and how the government is screwing you out of your tax dollars, uh, be sure to head to our website, <laughs> taxpayer.com, sign our petitions and we'll stay in touch. See you next time. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, President of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part.
Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.